Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh wow, really it's good. going up so slowly! The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Welcome to the September edition of Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists, with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson, and another exciting month in space. This time we're at the Royal Astronomical Society in London, and I'm actually sitting, well, Richard and I are sitting beneath Sir Isaac Newton, who's in a rather lovely gilt gold frame. On today's podcast, we have the latest on Europe's comet mission, Rosetta, hear about Europe's future plans for human space exploration, and talk to space music pioneer and NASA astronaut Katie Coleman. It's not easy work. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest things we can get from the space station is that working together as many different countries is not easy, but it's essential. We're joined here by astronomer Robert Massey. Now, Robert, is there loads going on in space right now? There's always loads going on in space, Richard. I mean, if you think about it, you know, every month there's something you can look at in the sky. Every month we're getting results from missions somewhere in the solar system. And every month we're getting amazing images from telescopes around the world and in space. So really, you know, there's rarely a dull moment. I think it's absolutely fair to say that. More excitement maybe now about it? We've been through a really nice period because we had the the culmination of the Rosetta mission and we've had the culmination of the, the New Horizons mission. So in the space of a few months, you've seen really long-term endeavours, you know, nine, ten-year missions come to fruition. And I think it says something about astronomy and space science that you have to be incredibly patient. You get people who do this at the start of their careers, you know, and they have this enormous worry. They get the money in place, they build the spacecraft, they get it to the launch facility, they take a deep breath as it launches, and hopefully if all goes to plan, it then arrives. And then they still worry that the instruments will switch on properly, they'll go into the correct orbit, all of those things. So, you know, but you have to have that 10-year time scale in mind. You can't sit there and think, we'll, do, we'll fund this and we'll do it next year. It just doesn't work like that. You know, you've got to think, this is going to be a large chunk of my career, and I hope it works. I must say, I think the images from Pluto are astonishing. We didn't know what it looked like, did we? I mean, we had uh, images of the planet from the, the Discovery pictures where it looks like a star. And then it wasn't until the 1970s that we found it had a moon, you know, a Sharon, a tiny little dot next to it. Actually, in the first pictures, it looks like a little lump on the side of it. And then we had the Hubble Space Telescope that just about showed it as a small world with a few dark and light areas on it. But it's not until the last few months that we've actually really had a good picture, you know, that we've been able to see the features, the, the huge ice mountains, these, uh, you know, the, the, there's fewer craters than in some worlds, but craters, that kind of stuff you'd expect. And all of that in great detail. Uh, it's remarkable that we can do this at such a huge distance as well, that we're prepared to put up with the fact that data takes the best part of five hours to get to us, that you've got this really, really slow connection that's pretty much slower than your 1990s modem when we all started to connect to home onto the internet. All of those things make it remarkable, and I think it's another wonderful success. 
Well, let's talk about uh, Rosetta now. And uh, this is where we last left the story. As the sun set over Philae's new home, he fell into a deep sleep, safe in the knowledge that he did his main job well and that his family of comet-chasing heroes would be proud of his achievement. That's from the European Space Agency's animated series about the Rosetta Comet Orbiter and Philae Lander. And that next part of the exciting adventure took place on 13th of August when Comet 67P made its closest approach to the Sun. And uh, Sue, you were at Mission Control. I mean, it wasn't such a big deal, really, was it? You say it wasn't such a big deal. It was a a business as usual for the team. It was a a normal day. There was nothing different they were doing in the Mission Control room that they'd done 24 hours before or 24 hours later but actually it was a significant milestone to reach that point did the italians get emotional about it no don't i love andrea don't you dare say anything about him he's a darling an absolute darling so yeah it's significant because it was the closest point and actually also you know quite sad really because it means they're heading towards the end of the mission okay they've got at least another year left but uh, they've done it their success they've reached a milestone and it's time for the rest of the science well as you say it's another year to go and a few days ago i caught up with rosetta project scientist matt taylor and asked him how the comet's behaving at the moment we're seeing up to 100, a ton basically, 1,000 thousand kilos per second of material being chucked off of the comet. And some of the new stuff that we saw around perihelion is that we're seeing this in bursts, very significant activity, very short-lived. So it's in a very exciting time, but also a dangerous time from a point of view of flying a spacecraft around this object. And what is this stuff that's being thrown off? The stuff that's coming off of the comet is, is dust and gas, basically. It's what the main constituents of the comet. And, and the reason we're there with Rosetta is trying to work out why this stuff comes off, how it comes off. And one of the puzzling things or, or challenges, really, and the interesting things at the moment is, is these, or the, are these observations that we're seeing of bursty-like behaviour, of, of time-variable activity. We're seeing these bursts of collimated material coming out, very high density, and then they drop off again. In fact, we had something in, in late July that was so forceful, the, ima- the emission was so great that it forced the solar wind, the outer atmosphere of the sun, which usually gets quite close and interacts with the gas and the dust around the comet, it just pushed it all away. So it was that big. It was something that was a nice present for us. We weren't expecting to see what we call a diamagnetic cavity. The magnetic field of the solar wind was pushed completely away. We weren't expecting to see it, and the comet delivered it to us instead. So that was very nice. Does this mean the comet's now starting to resemble more like the comets that we would traditionally imagine? A, an object with this stream yeah. of gas behind it, like Halley's Comet, like the other ones we've seen in the sky over the last few years? So this is the, the maximum activity, the maximum generation of the coma, which is what we see, the, the, the outer atmosphere of the comet, which is drawn away from the sun to form this wonderful tail. It's been there for, well, actually since last August, but now it's massive. It's orders of magnitude bigger than it was last last year. So it was around, what did I say, 19,000 kilometres in August last year. Now we're talking 100,000 kilometres or more, depending on how you measure it. So it's really that feature that, as you had referred to, it's what you imagine from the ground that you would be seeing as a comet. The unfortunate thing, the only negative aspect maybe if there is one, the only unfortunate aspect of Rosetta's comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko is it's difficult to see with a naked eye. But we have some very nice observations being made made by the amateur community it's not only the professional community on the ground the uh, observers with telescopes that are observing the comet now the amateur community are doing it and they have a very very important function 
for the science of the, uh, of the, the comet in that they have more time to do these observations. So we're getting high-cadence observations. We've got loads of people posting videos on the amateur uh, websites showing the comet moving across the sky, and we can't always do that with the professional telescopes, so it's a fantastically valuable scientific data set that we're also gaining from, the, from our fantastic amateur colleagues. Uh, there was talk uh, a few months ago, when I, I think when I last talked to you, maybe back in um, April, May sort of time, that the possibility of the comet splitting apart, that it was actually two lumps joined yeah. together and there was a fault line. Is there any chance of that happening? There's always a chance of that happening. We have this significant fracture that's been discussed as perhaps a stress fracture, which you could imagine if you have two bodies that are being perturbed by rotation and gravity. This is still under discussion. Again, we don't know. It might happen if we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of activity. Maybe this will drive. This, this enhancement in activity might cause this kind of thing to happen. We are seeing the comet speeding up in its rotation rate. It's changed its rotation rate. It's changed by about 10 minutes in the last few months, bordering on 15 minutes, actually. What the effect of that is on, on, on the, the, the physical structure and, uh, and, and containment of, uh, of all of this energy uh, is to be determined. Let's, let's see. Now, you mentioned the challenges of flying around an increasingly active comet. What about the Philae lander? Can we say it's died or is, it, is it, there still a chance it could wake up? We had contact with it in June up to early July. We then didn't have contact with it anymore. We do not know whether that's because it stopped transmitting. It is most likely, from my perspective, that we were being driven away from the comet. We had to fly further and further away from the comet because of activity, because of the interference of dust with our navigation devices. That has continued, so we've got further and further away from the comet. We're now up to about 400 kilometres from the comet. When the activity starts to wane, so after September, it should drop down. Hopefully that will also bring the dust density in the sky down. And that will enable us to get closer, and we hope that the, the land is doing what it's been doing all this time. Basically waking up in the morning, patting itself down, checking everything's okay, and then going back to sleep again. If we get closer, we're able to do a proper contact with it, we'll be able to command it, and then get some more science. Let's see what happens in the second half of this year. So what's the plan for the next 12 months? Because nominally you've got another 12 months mission yeah. to go. We were going to go up to December this year, 2015. Now we've got the extension to September next year. That period of time will enable us to properly analyse the southern hemisphere of the comet. We've only really seen that since uh, May this year. It came into sunlight. We've got a very short-lived summer in that period. It'll only last till March in 2016. And then we have equinox and we go back into the long, longer winter. So we'll be able to fully observe that part of the comet. Also want to take a little bit more risk in terms of what we're doing around the comet. One of the things we're looking at doing is actually flying into the tail region, which is something we've not really been doing. We didn't want to do that in the nominal mission because it may be a bit more risky. We're discussing whether to do that and how to do it. It will give us interesting aspects of what the dust population is like in that region and also how the solar wind and the, and, and the plasma physics, which is going on around the comet, how that's, what that's doing in the tail. It actually, we may see some phenomena similar to that that we see around the Earth, where we see magnetic field lines recombining. So that's one of the investigations we may be doing. And then the big one is getting towards the end of mission. Our end of mission scenario is to spiral the spacecraft into the comet, to basically land a fourth time, if you like, with the Rosetta mission overall. That's fundamentally interesting from a science perspective, as well as, I mean, it's, it's a good end of mission if you're going to have one. But it will give us the closest, highest resolution measurements as close as we possibly can. But also we'll get into regions of the coma where the coma is generated. We'll get into the physics of how the coma starts from the ground upwards. It's the first rung in the ladder of how the coma 
creates itself. So you've almost got another mission to do this whole this next year. Yes, I mean it's it, it it's beautiful that we've been able to extend the mission, and I think it's it, in some ways it's poetic that we're we're gonna we're gonna put the orbiter on on the comet as well. It's I think it's a okay. I was talking about science before, but I think the story of Rosetta it, it's a fitting finale for the entire mission. A very enthusiastic Rosetta Project scientist, Matt Taylor. And I was talking to Matt at the British Science Festival in Bradford. And it says something about the crowd there, I think, at the Science Festival. So many people were after his autograph. <laughs> he was a celebrity. He was a real celeb of the festival. Well, I'm not surprised. He's a, he's a wonderful man with a bad taste in shirts, but he's still a wonderful man. Actually, he was wearing a fantastic shirt. He, he does a lot of these selfies, doesn't he? he? He loves them where he looks like a great big grizzly bear in, in, in a loud shirt. And for the first time, actually, there was a, he was wearing a shirt that I actually really liked because it was filled. It looked like it was Star Wars X-Wing fighters or something. And I wasn't the only one. There were loads of people whose response was, where'd you get the T-shirt? But yeah, no, very exciting. I mean, Robert, you know, you were listening intently there to, to what he was saying as an astronomer this is a gift isn't it in terms of all the new observations well the nice thing about uh, comets and objects in the solar system in general is that we can actually send spacecraft to them most things in astronomy you have to accept the fact they're really really distant stars nebulae and so on you know that probably you're never going to get there but with objects like comets you can send a space probe there you can study it in great detail and we've got really good at that we first of all started off doing it in the 1980s with the approach of the flotilla of missions to comet halley in 1985 and 1986 and then we've we've got better ever since we've thrown things at them knocked holes in them uh, and now with the triumph of rosetta we've actually for the first time landed a package on a comet and sat it there and studied it and that's what phil i was doing you know listening to matt it'll be interesting to know whether it does wake up or not again and personally it'd be incredibly exciting if it does i was going to ask you that because i almost think it doesn't matter whether it wakes up or not because it's done its job amazingly you know it, it's sent back all this this information yes it would be yet another bit of the drama of the mission but actually the the lion's share of the science is really being done by the orbiter you're right in the sense i think that the orbiter is the thing that's sending back the photographs on you know on a daily basis and allows scientists to study the comet as a whole in detail and zoom in on particular regions but nonetheless i think it would be really intriguing to see if we can how that views change from the ground from the surface of the comet as well because that's something we've never been able to do now before uh, Rosetta got there, there were kind of analogies like it's um, riding a marshmallow in a microwave, you know, sitting on the surface of a comet. It's a, and perhaps the, the land has been a bit more resilient than that. But nonetheless, wouldn't it be just intriguing if, you know, you had pictures of some jet erupting next to it, being able to sit right next to that and see those images? So my personal view is that if that kind of thing could be done, it would be incredibly interesting. You know, but we, we just don't know. I mean, we'll have, Matt uh, knows better than any of us, I guess, but we'll wait and see in a couple of months and perhaps see if it does come back to life. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, absolutely. Were you expecting those jets and the eruptions of, of, of the material? I mean, I wouldn't want to comment on the specifics, but obviously comets, as they get in close to the sun, they, get, they warm up, and all the volatile material, the ices inside, they do something called subliming. They go straight from being a solid to a gas, and that's because... Phase. Yeah, exactly. You can't have a liquid phase because you need, you need pressure, you need an atmosphere for that to happen. There's, no, there's nothing like that around the comets. They, get, they turn straight to gas. So we've always seen that happening, but the details of it, seeing it up close, is what we haven't had that vantage point before, and that's what Rosetta's doing for us. They were talking... Um, 
Matt was talking about the contribution of amateurs to this. I'm, I'm paying tribute to them in a way. Astronomy always has, you know, amateur astronomers, the backbone of, of astronomy. Do they still play an important role in professional astronomy? The nice thing about amateur astronomers now is that because of the advances in imaging technology and the way you can make it that much cheaper, so, you know, the CCD in your smartphone, but down to those kind of cameras you can put on the back of small telescopes, you can get images from the ground with small telescopes that really it was only possible to get with very large ones 30 or 40 years ago. So amateur images, there's a guy called Damien Peach who works up in East Anglia, I think. He, he takes his pictures there. And he sends back images. He puts these online, generally distributes them for free, the most exquisite details of planets and comets and the moon and other objects that really nothing like that existed, even with the biggest telescopes in the world 40 years ago. So amateurs can make a real contribution. Now, I don't think it's, it's partly about the financial commitment you're prepared to make, but also it's about the time as well. You have to be pretty dedicated, getting out there a lot of nights and getting the data. But there are other ways of doing it, like Galaxy Zoo and so on, where you can just dip into it and you can make your contribution as a, a citizen scientist. Um, and so, you know, I'd encourage everybody to look at it, really. There's, there's many things you can do. That is amazing that anyone can be part of these missions. I think there's been a real recognition by the professional community in recent years that amateurs, although... I guess 40 or 50 years ago, the contribution was around things like variable stars and people sat there and watched light sources going up and down. And that still happens. But what professionals have realized is that they have several things they can get amateurs to help with. First of all, the large volume of data. So projects like Galaxy Zoo, for example, but also things like Stardust at Home, running screensavers, all of those things help. Uh, And as well, just being able to do things in terms of time that Matt talked about, being able to study an object night after night from the ground. There's a limited number of large professional observatories across the surface of the Earth, and there's a lot, but not enough to do that. And with those, you can get detailed pictures every so often. But what an amateur can do, if they're committed to it, is perhaps take those pictures every clear night for you. So you get a really long data set as well, and that's what's so valuable. If you had a choice, and it was your decision, what would you like Rosetta to do in its final month of the mission? Do a crash landing, go through the tail? I I would like to see it land. I mean, why not? You know, that would give us another... uh, If if it landed successfully and we were able to get pictures that got very close to the surface, then what you get is another image of a completely different part to the bit um, Phil is sitting on. So wouldn't that be valuable? As well as which, it feels like that nice coda, that nice finish to the mission where it sits down gently on the comet and then rides it round the sun for not quite eternity, but for many thousands of years to come. Well, more to come on Rosetta throughout the next 12 months. And still to come on Space Boffins, what will Europe's astronauts be doing in the coming years? And music in space. You can reach Space Boffins on Facebook and Twitter and binge on our back catalogue on the Naked Scientist website. The launch of the Russian Soyuz carrying European Space Agency astronaut Andreas Mogensen to the International Space Station on September the 2nd. Now, Andreas is the fourth astronaut from the class of 2009 to make it into space. In this case, on a relatively short mission, he's been in space for just 10 days. The European Astronaut Corps comprises some 14 astronauts in total. But what are they going to do with them in the future, particularly after the International Space Station project comes to an end? Well, it's a question I put to the ESA head of Human Spaceflight and Operations, former astronaut Thomas Reiter. 
The five-year plan certainly is uh, focused on uh, continuing utilizing the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. However, that already needs to be seen in the context of taking initial steps to bring humans beyond low Earth orbit. And obviously, the next most uh, obvious destination would be the moon. That goes beyond five years, but the preparations are uh, using ISS as a platform. And that's a slightly different plan to the NASA plan, which is talking about an asteroid and Mars. So how would Europe achieve the goal of getting astronauts onto the moon? I mean, one point is clear. This can be only done in an international cooperation. And when I'm saying that uh, we are looking to prepare the steps of getting humans beyond low Earth orbit to the vicinity of the moon, I understand that, of course, the question bringing them to the surface of the moon is something that Europe will not be able to do by itself. We would be able to play a role there. And in fact, bringing humans beyond low Earth orbit, we already have a role because we are cooperating with NASA on uh, the Orion project, or MPCV as it is called, also multi-purpose crew vehicle, where um, NASA in the US, the capsule is built, and based on the ATV um, knowledge, that is the uh, supply vehicle that um, was uh, uh, flying to the International Space Station five times, on the basis of this, we are now developing, in cooperation with our US partners, a service module for this capsule. So we have a, a, a role in uh, exactly this uh, new transportation system, which would be able to bring humans to moon orbit, or let's say to the moon vicinity. So the first step is already done. If that's the case, though, America's not talking about a return to the moon. America is talking about going on to Mars or an asteroid. So how would Europe get to the moon? Would that be with Russia or with China? As I said, it should be an international endeavor, and indeed, um, our colleagues from Russia have, uh, uh, are very determined to uh, bring humans to the surface of the moon, so that would be an option. And I think also on the U.S. side, uh, you are, of course, absolutely right. The, uh, let's say, destination that is currently discussed, the intermediate destination, would be an asteroid, recovering an asteroid, bringing it to a retrograde orbit around the moon, and then flying uh, with uh, the Orion capsule to this asteroid. But I think um, here still some considerations are going on, and um, I think it would be uh, interesting to see how that evolves. At the moment, I think there is a consensus that we um, are taking a next step beyond low Earth orbit, getting to the moon vicinity. But I agree with you in terms of really setting up the scenarios, uh, the exact mission descriptions for bringing human to the surface of the moon. That needs to be done with those partners that I have mentioned. So that could be Russia or could be China. You're basically prepared to deal with, with anyone not just the United States. We had uh, last year in January a big conference in Washington about uh, exploration. And uh, this conference was attended by more than 30 space agencies, um, amongst them the European Space Agency, but also national space agencies from ESA member states, from China, from Russia. Also the ISS uh, program members were there. And it was a consent that future exploration and specifically human exploration will be done in cooperation. So I would not restrict it to those two partners that you have mentioned, I, Russia and China. I would say that um, at the moment we are uh, really developing roadmaps and um, 
flight scenarios where each of those partners could take or have a role. And in this sense, we, we are working pure technically um, in the implementation of our programs. We are taking this concrete step in cooperation with the NASA on a transportation system. We are working on a cooperation with Russia in a robotic mission to the Lunar South Pole, the Lunar Resource Mission, which should um, launch in 2019. So that would be a preparatory step of then at a later point in time, maybe in the second half of the next decade indeed, to develop a scenario where humans would return. And who will be the partners then? I think we should give some time for discussions with uh, all those uh, members. But you're coming from the perspective as you want a European astronaut on the moon rather than you want to go with NASA to Mars and you will work with whoever can help Europe do that. Through the first part of your question, yes. I would very much uh, hope to see uh, a European astronaut on the surface of the moon and I see the moon as an intermediate step to a human mission to Mars. Director of ESA's Human Spaceflight and Operations, Thomas Reiter. Robert, interesting, he's talking about the moon as the obvious destination, whereas NASA, you can't, I mean, every time they do a launch or anything like this, it's a footstep to Mars, it's always a footstep to Mars, whereas this seems to be a raw, realistic prospect. Well, it is realistic because obviously we've done it before and the moon uh, has the advantage of being a few days away, whereas a Martian mission is at the moment a two-year round trip. And my personal view is that we won't see that for some time simply because the logistics, it's such an undertaking to get people there and back and to do it with a, a reasonable degree of safety. So maybe the European ambition of trying for the moon first is a good idea. I mean, I suppose the the Apollo missions suffered from the fact that they were a specific program and they came to an end. There was no real idea of what to do after that because the Americans won the space race. Uh, you know, They didn't have the money to keep going with it and they had other priorities. And I think if we did go back to the moon, if Europe goes back, say, in cooperation with China, Japan or Russia or whoever, then there needs to be some thought as to what it's for and, and you know, how long we stay there. Do we actually build a base, which was obviously really difficult you know not a trivial thing to do but more than just well to show that we can do it you know you have to think about the science goals the exploration goals as well huge benefit though for astronomy if you got a telescope on the moon well the main thing actually you can do the the main one of the interesting things you do with astronomy is you can put a radio telescope on the far side Um, and an optical telescope probably if you're going to do that you can do it more cheaply not not actually (laughs) relatively cheaply with projects like hubble and the james Webb space telescope but if you put a radio observatory on the far side then you've got the whole of the moon shielding you from terrestrial radio interference so that's one example of a project that's been talked about for a long time it's also useful as a kind of laboratory for well, there are all kinds of exotic ideas, like you know, it might harbour uh, materials that have been thrown off other planets and so on. The thing I can think it could do is look, say, out into parts of the universe, look out into the solar system that you can't quite so easily see from the Earth at a given point in time. But yeah, it's it's probably a marginal thing. But what there are there are advantages in, uh, in having the moon as a scientific lab. You know, you are outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, obviously, you're in a rather harsh environment as well for that reason. But there are a lot of things you can do. There. Isn't it also about learning the lessons? If we are going to go to Mars, which hopefully we will, it, it's a massive step to go to Mars. It wouldn't it make more sense to have the moon base? on the moon, to establish a moon settlement. And if it all goes wrong, you can come back really easily. But you learn the lessons first. 
there, there are lessons there. I guess, I mean, you're in a low rather than a zero-gravity environment, so compared with the astronauts on the space station. You have a very harsh place to deal with because you don't have the Earth's magnetic field protecting you from radiation from the sun and so on. That's one of the, the big health risks in any interplanetary mission. And I guess you could study the sort of psychology of it as well, of having a few of you cooped up in a not very big moon base for a while. So in that sense, I think there are lessons that could be applied to a Mars mission. On the other hand, in some ways, if you're on Mars, perhaps there are more resources you can utilize easily. You know, you could at least theoretically get water out of the soil if you're in the right place and you can make rocket fuel and so on. That's a bit harder to do on the moon, which is not to say there aren't resources there, it's just they're different ones. It's made me wonder how those volunteers are are doing who are in the... uh year-long Mars simulation. Well, they've only been there a couple of weeks. You'd hope they still all right. I was going to say, if you're with the wrong person, just a few days is enough. Well, the uh, United Nations has released its new global goals for sustainability. And at the end of uh, September, there'll be a major event called Project Everyone. It's been set up by the filmmaker and comic relief founder Richard Curtis. He of Four Weddings and a Funeral and Blackadder fame. And its aim is to spread the word about these global goals. And we're delighted to say that Space Boffins is involved. Now, we can't say too much about it at this stage, about our contribution, but it has involved astronauts, which is how we got an interview with NASA astronaut Katie Coleman. She's been on two missions, spending a total of 180 days in space which she said simply wasn't enough. A polymer chemist by training, Katie is currently on loan to NASA's Office of the Chief Technologist, and here she explains the effect on her of living and working in space. Looking back, it's it's actually becomes very clear that the Earth is one place. It's almost, for me, hard to feel like a citizen of a single country after having spent time on the space station looking out and seeing our our beautiful planet, but also our very interesting and fascinating planet. And and the thought of having a border between one place and another or that one one place should decide things for for everyone else. Our space station is actually, I like to think of it as a blueprint, as a sort of optimal design for international cooperation. We have an international team we do research that comes from many different countries and actually benefits the, the whole earth. And we learn to work together, in, in, and it's not easy work. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest things we can get from the space station is that working together as many different countries is not easy, but it's essential. And it becomes really clear that every minute up there on that space station counts and that every minute should be used either to be human or to do really good research. And so we really have to learn how to work together. And it's not just the six people living up on the space station, usually three Russians and then some combination of the United States, of Japan, of of Europe, of Canada. It's not just our six people, but every day, over and over again, hundreds of people from around the world are making the decisions that actually make the plan that we six astronauts work from. Looking down at the Earth from space, it becomes very clear that we we have some serious problems down here that it's going to take all of us to fix, and that it it can't be just one kind of person trying to fix those problems, and that we we really actually need, in order to fix things here on our our Earth, and, and also in order to make the journey to Mars, we can't do it with what we know right now. And we need to actually make sure that people know how to innovate, that people know how to to figure out things that they just didn't know before. And the way to do that is together. 
And I'm very proud of some work that I'm doing here at the NASA headquarters with a program called launch.org, where based on sustainability, we actually pick a project almost every year. This year's project was green chemistry. And we pick out 10 innovators. We, we get a, a whole lot of people to apply and tell us what they're doing in, in a field. Then we pick about 10 of those, and we assemble basically an adopted board of directors. They're, they come from all walks of life, from the government, they're international, they're U.S., they're from companies. Uh, there's some, but very little venture capital. It's not about coming and acquiring money or a contest. It's about people leaving their egos at the door and figuring out, these innovators are doing important work. What can we do to help them? And it's the fact that this this partnership, which is made up of, a, it's a wild partnership. It is NASA, the State Department, USAID, and Nike. And together, we bring a very, very wide range of folks as this board of directors. And together, we figure out how to help these innovators. And whether they succeed or not, we're learning something about the system. And so if these very deserving innovators don't succeed, we're understanding what can we do as NASA, as the State Department, as USAID, as Nike, what can we do to make sure that innovation is happening in order to end up with a sustainable planet? We also got onto the subject of music and its importance in space as Katie took a penny whistle and several flutes onto the space station. I've always thought of music as just a very human thing and almost a human form of communication. I, I like to play the flute. I'm not the most amazing flute player in the whole world, but I really, I really love it. And I love to play with people. And I don't actually often play by myself except to practice, which I just know I kind of have to do. And so what I did up on the space station was I brought uh, recordings of my band, Back on Earth, happens to be made up of mostly astronauts. Chris Hadfield is our singer, songwriter, guitar player. But I brought a, rec a recordings of our band up there with me, and then I would put them on the computer and have them blaring out in the cupola, and I would be playing my flute, looking out at the Earth, sometimes in darkness, sometimes uh, during the, the Earth, uh, our Earth Day. And it just was a, a wonderful way to sort of be together with people that I couldn't be with right then. And in fact, we actually had a sort of a, a live concert, um, my band and I, where electronically it's a little bit difficult to do just to play together. And so what happens is they have to not listen to me, but I listened to them and played along, and then they could hear the, the tape uh, afterwards. But it was really just wonderful to spend. It was like spending a Friday evening with your best friends playing music. And, and music is something that I think is just inherent in, in, in human nature. People, as soon as you give them any kind of object, they're going to make music. And I'm especially proud of some of the things that I did up there because I think they represent the fact that our space station is an outpost of our Earth, and yet it's still very connected to that Earth. NASA astronaut Katie Coleman, who will feature soon in a special production made by your very own Space Boffins. You'll be thrilled. I 
trust me on that it's brilliant when you hear the identity of our presenter we'll reveal all on facebook and twitter very soon oh a lot of teasers aren't yeah, they? yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, thanks very much to our guest robert massey from the royal astronomical society supporters of this podcast as is the atrium space insurance consortium as sue mentioned do visit our facebook page to see pictures of the best space cake ever and read why spacex needs to repair community relations we'll also post pictures from next week's opening of the major russian space exhibition at the science museum in london where there is a very special guest in attendance i don't think we can say who it is can uh, we I'd, are you sure or oh, i don't think we can it might be embargoed. I think it, I think actually it is embargoed yeah, Damn. Think, yeah you can't uh, say that either there's, there's so much <laughs> exciting stuff we will share it all with you on facebook i mean I, i'm worried i might actually wet myself when oh, i see no. this special guest i'm oh, so please. excited oh, oh we leave you with that image <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Thanks for listening.